This is the Asade Podcast Channel. Audio pills to get inspired. Muy buenas tardes. Eh, uh, me presento. Es uh, el primer acto en el que tengo la ocasión de participar públicamente como director general de, de Asade. He aterrizado físicamente esta mañana. Eh, decirles que es un enorme placer estar aquí. Es un honor, por supuesto, también ser parte de, de esta extraordinaria institución y, además, tener el gusto de, de inaugurar este acto con un invitado tan destacado como Niall Ferguson. Eh, déjenme, en primer lugar, eh, saludarles a todos ustedes, saludar también a uno de nuestros patronos, a Pera Viñolas, que está con, con nosotros. Eh, eh, agradecer a la Fundación Rafael del Pino, que está aquí representada por Ana María Cebrián, eh, eh, por querer organizar este acto con ESADE. Agradecer también al, al, al Círculo de, de Economía, que está representado por su nueva directora, Marta Anguerri, eh, que esta mediodía, por cierto, han ofrecido un extraordinario almuerzo en el que hemos tenido la ocasión de compartir distintos puntos de vista con el profesor Ferguson. Lo mismo para el Club Toqueville y para el Instituto Mises de Barcelona, que también nos acompañan hoy representados por sus respectivos directores, Valentí Puch y Juan Torres. Uh, finally, of course, I would like to express my very, very deep gratitude to Professor uh, Ferguson for having accepted our invitation uh, in spite of his very, very busy schedule. He was also landing this morning and is moving from here in the weekend to China. So uh, it is really a great, great pleasure to have you here, Professor Ferguson. Uh, decirles simplemente que este es un acto de lo que uh, incluimos como debate social, que es una parte muy, muy importante del rol eh, que tiene ESADE en la sociedad y que tiene que ver con ayudarnos a todos a ser eh, mejores personas, mejores profesionales y también mejores ciudadanos que incluye funciones de investigación, investigación que en la medida de lo posible es bueno que sea capaz de incomodarnos un poco, eh, de decirnos verdades que a veces nos cuestan digerir y, como no, debate social. Y el debate social no es debate si no está basado en el pluralismo, si no está basado, por supuesto, en el respeto, en la incorporación de todas las ideas que legítimamente pueden expresarse en una sociedad. Y, obviamente, el tema que nos trae el profesor Ferguson eh, en, este, en este libro, con este sugerente eh, título eh, que, que lleva, es un tema extraordinariamente actual. Eh, el tema del desarrollo de las redes, eh, un tema que, además, él aborda con una muy interesante y muy amena perspectiva histórica y que plantea muchas cuestiones sobre cómo interactúan redes, estados en, en la sociedad, en las sociedades y en las economías de nuestro tiempo. Eh, ¿Cuál es la relación de estas redes con los estados? Como decía, ¿cuál es su relación con estructuras de intermediación? ¿Qué efectos tienen las redes sobre la vida política, sobre la vida económica y, como no, también sobre el sistema democrático? Dejo a uh, Neil Ferguson en, en, en manos de nuestro profesor eh, Ángel Saz, que es el director de SADE-G. Muchas gracias. Buenas tardes. Es un placer. Es un placer poder... Buenas tardes. Mi nombre es Ana Cebrián y vengo en nombre de la Fundación Rafael del Pino, a la que represento. 
Ante todo, quiero manifestar que es un honor estar aquí y tener la oportunidad de participar en este acto organizado por ESADE y hacerlo en nombre de la Fundación Rafael del Pino, a la que represento como miembro de su patronato y de su comisión ejecutiva. La Fundación fue creada por mi abuelo en el año 1999, a punto de cumplir eh, 80 años y la, y la dotó con enorme generosidad para que pudiese ser independiente y perdurara a lo largo de los años con la ayuda y el apoyo de su familia. Los principales objetivos de la Fundación, a imagen y semejanza de mi abuelo, son, en primer lugar, la formación de dirigentes y el fomento de la actividad emprendedora. En segundo lugar, el impulso de la iniciativa individual, la defensa de los, de los principios de libre mercado y de la libertad de empresa. Y en tercer lugar, la difusión del conocimiento y la defensa del patrimonio nacional. Estos objetivos explican por qué tenemos tantos puntos en común con ESADE y por qué hemos colaborado en tantas ocasiones tanto en Madrid como en Barcelona. Es nuestra intención que la presencia de la Fundación siga creciendo en Barcelona y que podamos seguir colaborando en muchas otras ocasiones. Por ello, quería dar las gracias primero a, a, a su director, Coldo Echevarría, que, empieza, que se estrena hoy en el cargo y al que deseo lo mejor en su nueva andadura. También a Ángel Sad, director de SADEGEO, por la, por la invitación recibida y felicitarles por la perfecta organización de la presentación del libro del profesor Ferguson. Muchas gracias también a, a la editorial Debate, al Club Toqueville y al Círculo Economía y a todos ustedes por acompañarnos. Last but not least, I would like to express in a special way my gratitude, our gratitude to Professor Ferguson for his kindness and his willingness to be here today at Barcelona and tomorrow in Fundación Rafael del Pino in Madrid. We thank you for your tireless efforts. As we know, you just came from California and you are on your way to China. We are eager to listen to you this evening. Estamos, como he dicho, deseando escuchar la presentación de su nuevo libro, La Plaza y la Torre. Aunque la lectura del libro exige tiempo y atención, sus 651 páginas son un caudal permanente de información y reflexiones atinadas y un pozo de sabiduría. Leer el libro es una magnífica inversión intelectual que contribuye a aumentar nuestro conocimiento sobre uno de los fenómenos que actualmente ha adquirido una gran relevancia, las redes sociales. Bueno, ya no me entretengo más, pues no han venido ustedes a escucharme. Como he dicho antes, uno de los objetivos de la Fundación Rafael del Pino es la formación. Y qué mejor manera de seguir formándonos que escuchar al profesor Ferguson esta tarde. Muchas gracias a todos. Muchas gracias. Buenas tardes, ahora sí. Es un gran placer pasar with Professor Ferguson, someone that we have uh, read, that we have watched, and we have listened to on, on, on for a long time. Um, Professor Ferguson doesn't need uh, much introduction, but let me just point out he's has had a chair in uh, Harvard University, uh, professor also of, uh, of Harvard Business School, right now at Stanford University. Um, he's also very related to some of the subjects we deal here at the SADE uh, on geopolitical risk. He's, he's also has a, a, a business on geopolitical risk and he has consulted um, on geopolitical risk for firms and other institutions. And of course, his works and his books, um, among others, his timeliness in publishing his books. Let's uh, remember 
the ascent of money that came out just in the right moment you know, to, to discuss and, and help us inform, inform ourselves about the crisis, the financial crisis. And uh, this book here, coming out just a year ago after, after the tumultuous politics that has been shaking the world and probably have something to do with, with networks. Um, and of course, the authorized biography of, of Henry Kissinger, which we are ex expecting and waiting for the second, the second uh, part. So um, to start off uh, talking about this fascinating book, I was telling him, uh, for those of us professors teaching and studying networks, a historian had to come by to explain and uh, succinctly describe how networks work and what are the real effects in, in our social lives. But before we go into that, more details, let's start off, what is, or what, what are, what is a network and what is a hierarchy? Because sometimes we talk of, in the book, we talk about spy networks and we talk about the KGB. The KGB has a hierarchy Probably, you know, there's a, someone must be a director general there. But at the same time, it's a network. So to start off uh, and, and, and put some conceptual order, how, how do you define networks and how do you define hierarchies? Well, it's, first of all, a pleasure to be here in one of the loveliest of, of Europe's cities at an exciting time in its history. And I'm really grateful uh, to uh, you, your colleagues, and to the foundation for the invitation. I'm especially grateful to everybody who has come at the beginning of the academic year. One is usually rather too busy uh, to come uh, to such events, so thank you for taking the time. Let me begin by trying to relate your question to the everyday experience of the people in this audience. Because I think all of us intuitively get the distinction between a social network and, and a hierarchy because we spend our lives going back and forth between the two domains in what I call the square in the, the plaza. You are interacting with your friends and, and family in an informal, unstructured way and nobody is really in charge. But then you go to work uh, or you come to university and you enter the realm of the, the hierarchy. There's an organization chart and at the top of it, somebody is in charge and you are somewhere in that chart reporting to some people, perhaps having others report to you. So I think we all understand the difference between a social network and an organization chart. And we all understand that when we walk out of the square and into a government building or the offices of a bank, we, we leave behind the unstructured network and we enter some hierarchical structure. So that's sort of obvious and makes sense to, to most people. I could be more specific. We could have an organization chart of the people in this room and we could put at the top of it the most senior member of the academic community and, bad news, 
at the bottom of it, some of the students that I see here, yeah, you are at the bottom of the academic food chain. Uh, but don't worry, one day you'll be sitting on the front row uh, if you play your cards right, and people will be calling you professor or uh, dean. But if we graph the social network of the people in this auditorium, if we drew the links between you, we would find out a very different thing. We would find out who was the most connected person in the room, the person with the highest betweenness centrality, to use the technical term, the person you have to go through to get to most other people. And that wouldn't be you, uh, because uh, you're relatively new in the job. Each organization has an organization chart that is the official hierarchy and a social network, which is where the social interactions are more accurately represented. When I moved to the Hoover Institution at Stanford, almost the first thing I suggested uh, to the director was that we do a social network analysis of ourselves to find out how we related to one another within the institution. The problem, intellectually, is that there is no clear distinction between a network and a hierarchy. It is a false dichotomy. I use it for purely explanatory purposes. I start the book by imagining a clear distinction, and then I break the bad news to you and the reader, actually, there are just networks. And there is a continuum of networks, some of which are decentralized and distributed, and others of which are hierarchical. And your example of the KGB, of the Russian External Intelligence Organization, illustrates the point. It was both hierarchical, in the sense that there was indeed somebody in charge, and it was part of a very hierarchical Soviet uh, bureaucracy, but it also had an informal uh, and secret network of agents and informants, uh, some of them double agents whose identities were unknown. The difficult reality about our world is that every human organization is both hierarchical to some degree and a network. And the big puzzle for anybody who wants to study the subject is what it is that causes a decentralized network to become a hierarchical network. And that process can happen very fast indeed. I'll give you one example and then be quiet. The World Wide Web was dreamt up by Tim Berners-Lee and others and was imagined to be a de decentralized, distributed network which anybody could join. And that was the vision, a kind of flat world in which we would all be netizens, all in a sense equal nodes on a, on a network that had no central node. That was the dream. Today, and it's not that much later, the World Wide Web is dominated by a handful of giant corporations, Google, Amazon, 
Facebook, you know the names. And these corporations are extraordinarily hierarchical in their structure, with vast power vested in the hands of the people who own them. Mark Zuckerberg has spoken for years about the way that Facebook would create a global community. And it sounded great. But I just read a profile of him in the New Yorker magazine in which he reveals that his hero in history is the Emperor Augustus. <laughs> so a network could turn out to be a hierarchy or can become a hierarchy very quickly indeed. Facebook is the Roman Empire. Who knew? Thanks. So um, you, uh, part of the objective of the book is also to show how networks ha can explain to a certain extent history. And, and you, you, you provide several examples. So um, what are the important things that network or the, the conceptualization of networks can help us for understanding history? Well, you're right that I'm motivated as an historian to understand the historical process better. It came as a kind of shock to me to realize that I had spent so much of my career writing the history of networks without really understanding how networks work. I had written books, for example, about uh, the Rothschild family uh, and the extraordinary network of, of German-Jewish finance that evolved in the course of the 19th century and continued to be extraordinarily important into the 20th century and to some degree still exists. But I'd never really understood the theory of networks because historians tend not to be taught that kind of thing. However, my mother is a physicist, my sister is a physicist, and more than most historians, I tend to dabble in other disciplines. And there was a moment of of sudden realization when I started to read works on network theory, relatively popular science books like Laszlo Barabasi's uh, book Linked, or work by Nicholas Christakis uh, on social networks and contagion. And I had this tremendous excitement. It, it gripped me that I had stumbled into a field that could really help historians to understand better the things that they study. After all, social networks were not invented by Mark Zuckerberg. They have always existed, and human beings have almost always organized themselves right back into prehistory in social networks. How much more interesting it would be, I thought, to start to understand the networks in history using the tools of network science rather than just talking vaguely about social circles. Once I began to read more deeply, it hit me that the explanatory power of network science for historians was enormous. Some of the phenomena that we historians have spent decades trying to understand, for example, the rise of fascism, really benefits from the application of network science. Let me illustrate the point. We have a central question in the 20th century. Why did one of the most advanced of all the countries in the world, namely Germany, end up being ruled by Adolf Hitler? Why did Hitler's ideology spread so rapidly through Germany in the 1930s? 
that it was possible for the Nazi party to take control of the entire German state and plunge Europe into a Second World War. Nobody has ever applied network science to that question. We haven't really advanced our understanding at all of the rise of Hitler since the 1980s when Jürgen Falter did his first analysis of the Nazi vote. And I'm in the process of trying to answer this question using network science to show how the Nazi party was structured as a network, how it spread over time, and what the best predictors were of its spread. For example, did Hitler making a speech in a town cause a rapid increase in Nazi membership? Because we have the tools to graph a network like the Nazi network and the data, we can understand far better why an extremist movement could take over an extraordinarily advanced society. And that seems like pretty important knowledge to have. So I would say that for historians, this is not just optional. This is like vitally important uh, a toolkit that we should all understand and be able to use. Thanks. Among, among the different um, lessons or characteristics or basic characteristics of networks that you point out, point out in the book, one of them is breaking this naive idea that networks are flat and that every, and they're egalitarian and that everybody has the same power in a network. Uh, when you refer to scale-free networks and how nodes don't have the same power. So uh, how, how does that and uh, what sort of examples do you find in history uh, that relate to, to, to illustrating that networks are not that fantasy of, of egalitarianism that some of us or some people think? I think I was as taken in by Silicon Valley propaganda as anybody. I certainly remember believing that if we were all connected, everything would be awesome. I, I would drive along listening to uh, national public radio shows in which Silicon Valley people would talk about this wonderful global community that they were building. And I would read Tom Friedman's book about a flat world and think, wow, this is so exciting. I'm sure it was uh, that kind of excitement that led me to listen to my children who were then in their teens when they said, oh, dad, you must go on Facebook. Uh, so I went through a phase of, uh, of naivety on this subject until I began uh, to read seriously about networks and to realize that a social network is almost never a lattice. Imagine that we were a lattice and that each of us had the same number of relationships to the other people in the room. Now, we each knew three other people. That doesn't exist in any social setting I've ever come across. Even a relatively small group of people will not have that architecture. More commonly, and it's true or at least more obvious, the bigger the network gets, the structure will be scale-free. That is to say, it won't even be normally distributed. There will be this extraordinary fat tail distribution whereby in the network, a small number of nodes have a very large number of edges, and a large number of nodes have hardly any. 
And the reason for this is best explained by Barabasi in the book I mentioned, Linked. Uh, there is preferential attachment in social networks. When I join the social network, whether it's the network of this institution or Facebook or Twitter, I want to connect with the best connected people. That's my preference. I, I'll follow Donald Trump first on Twitter because he's Donald Trump and I kind of need to know what he tweets because it could cause uh, a trade war to escalate. I don't really care what Neil Ferguson thinks. Uh, at least I don't care as much. And so the way that networks evolve, the way that they grow, is inherently bound to make them anything but flat. In fact, you should visualize social networks as extraordinarily unflat, very, very unequal structures in which there's this kind of very, very heavily connected group up here, and then there are all these very low-connected people out here. That, that's the kind of in, insight from the theory. Then you uh, start to look at historical events using this lens. And let me take one uh, uh, from the realm of intellectual history. The Enlightenment, without question, advanced our understanding of the human condition uh, as far and as fast as any intellectual movement in history. It was an extraordinary moment in 18th century Europe, mostly Europe, though there were some Enlightenment thinkers on the other side of the Atlantic, in which a finite number of thinkers, of writers, together thought through the problems ranging from how an economy works, which was Adam Smith's great preoccupation, to the more profound question of the, the nature of uh, of existence uh, itself, which Immanuel Kant and others grappled with. We can graph the network of the Enlightenment because the Enlightenment thinkers corresponded with one another and shared ideas with one another in ways that are empirically intelligible. And when we do that, we start to see the structure of the Enlightenment, to see who the most influential thinkers were merely in terms of the numbers of relationships and correspondence that they had. Uh, Voltaire's network is one that I talk about in, in this book. And I think that's extremely helpful in, in illuminating how an intellectual movement or paradigm shift occurs. That doesn't, of course, help you understand Kant any more than you did before. You still have to read uh, Kant to understand his ideas but it helps you understand how an intellectual revolution happens. Second following example, the American Revolution was a great turning point in human history uh, in which many of the ideas of the Enlightenment were put into action uh, by the so-called founding fathers of the American Republic. That revolution can be understood much better using network science as somebody born in Britain, I naturally tended to side with the Redcoats against the American revolutionaries. Uh, and so I, I have, have still, even now that I'm an American citizen, to struggle a bit to see them as the good guys. What made their revolution successful was that there was a very powerfully connected network of like-minded men, and they were all men, in New England, in particular, 
who conceived of the idea of seceding from the United Kingdom, from the British Empire. And this network, when we study it, turned out to be composed of multiple institutions uh, that Joseph Warren uh, and Paul Revere uh, belonged to. Those men turn out to be the central nodes of the American Revolution. Paul Revere was not a great thinker. He didn't write much. In fact, he was an engraver by profession. But he knew everybody, and he belonged to all the key associations, including the Masonic Lodge, which was probably the most important of all the Boston institutions from which the revolution sprang. One understands the American Revolution in a completely new light when it ceases to be Hamilton the musical and becomes a social network analysis in which Hamilton is not an especially important figure. He was quite late to the Revolutionary Party. So I think these are the ways in which social network analysis helps historians to understand intellectual shifts and political revolutions. And that's good because it resists, uh, uh, or rather it, it counters our tendency to think always in terms of great men. We are predisposed to give agency to great men in history. Even the Marxist historians tend to do that uh, when Marxist great men enter the story. But when you do network analysis, it turns out that the famous people aren't necessarily the nodes with the highest centrality. So network analysis helps you correct your assumption that George Washington is the most important person in the American Revolution. From that vantage point, he wasn't. No, one of the uh, perhaps most important conduits of networks is information, information sharing. And uh, you draw a parallel between the information revolution of the printing press and today's revolution with social networks. And we all think about Facebook and so forth. But there's, you, you point out there's a, there's a crucial difference. So the printing press, once it was uh, discovered or invented, it, it spread. And everybody, or, or most of Europe, quickly, um, quickly um, possessed one. And therefore, they, they, they could start printing. Now, social networks today are owned. There's a guy or there's a person owning those networks. So what sort of implications that has uh, on how we are experiencing or how networks affect our lives today with respect to, to previous information revolutions? That's a great question, Angel. The the analogy that for me is most powerful is the analogy between the printing revolution and the internet revolution. If we are to understand our time with historical perspective, we need to go all the way back to the early 16th century, go back 500 years, to a world, to a Europe that was being disrupted by a new technology arguably Chinese in origin, but certainly never mass-produced in China, the printing press. And the printing press made it possible for ideas to go viral in ways that hadn't been possible before, because the printing press did, to the cost of a page uh, and to the volume of uh, information, very much the same things that the internet and the personal computer did uh, in our time. 
So this exponential growth in the volume of printed matter relative to the number of books that could be produced by hand uh, was a really massive change, and it really did reduce the cost of a book. And here's, here's a wonderful example of 16th century technology right here, a <laughs> printed book. Uh, essentially, the cost of a book fell by 99% thanks to the invention of printing. If the printing press hadn't existed, Martin Luther would not have been able to unleash a religious revolution beginning in Germany and then spreading throughout Northern Europe because he would never have been able to spread his message fast enough to, uh, to disrupt the Roman Catholic hierarchy. He would almost certainly have been burnt as a heretic and largely forgotten except by medieval historians. So the printing press is, is absolutely the key to understanding the Reformation, and it helps us think about our time, because I don't think there has been a communications revolution like it until the advent of the internet uh, and the personal computer. Now, you're sitting there thinking, but wait, 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 what about the telegraph? What about the telephone? What about the radio? But all of those different technologies uh, had the characteristic that they could be controlled from the top down. They had a hub-and-spoke architecture, uh, and the communications were largely one way, uh, which is why they didn't have anything like the same disruptive effect. Actually, the telegraph and its successors empowered central authorities and made possible the 19th century uh, empires and the 20th century totalitarian states. So the printing press and the internet have in common that they allowed distributed networks to flourish and disrupted hierarchical order. But you make a vital point, Angel. Gutenberg did not become like Zuckerberg. He did not become the billionaire of the late 15th century. He did not own all the printing presses, and he did not collect rents uh, from that ownership. In fact, he went bankrupt, and at the time of his death was reliant on a state pension. There were no billionaires produced by the printing revolution. The, the technology was decentralized in its ownership. I mean, you just basically set up your printing press in the city that you, you inhabited and hoped that not too many other people did the same thing because you'd have to compete with them. And it stayed that way. The amazing thing about the printing press was that it never got centrally owned, except in places like Nazi Germany or Stalin's Soviet Union. In the rest of the world, even the most powerful media tycoons, from William Randolph Hearst to Rupert Murdoch, only ever controlled a quite small slice of the market for print. That's important because it's the biggest difference I can think of between then and now. In our time, as I mentioned earlier, with amazing speed, the internet became centrally controlled by companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook. And those companies, in turn, are owned quite centrally with their founders' uh, equity stakes, often controlling ones. And that's one very huge difference. It gives them power that nobody had in the age of print. Not even William Randolph Hearst, certainly not Rupert Murdoch, ever had as much power as Mark Zuckerberg has today. 80% of news in the United States is now consumed via Facebook or Google. People don't go straight to the newspaper websites. They go to stories via the newsfeed or search. 
So this is an astonishing concentration of power that we never saw in the age of print. And another point that's really impressive to me, everything now on the internet is or wants to be monetized through advertising. That is the basic business model at the heart of all the network platforms. They appear to be free, they're financed through advertising, and what they most need is your attention, your engagement to justify the money they charge the advertisers. In the age of print, relatively little content was financed in this way. The newspapers and magazines eventually figured out how to make a lot of money from advertising. But you'll look in vain for ads in a book, except maybe for other books by the same author. <laughs> this is a completely different approach to monetizing content, where you just pay the author and the publisher for their work. Or think of an even more radical idea. Imagine content free and arranged not by some fancy algorithm that is almost certainly being gamed by commercial interests, content sorted in a rational way so that books on subjects close to this one appear near it on the shelves. Yes, I'm talking about libraries. From the various earliest time before printing, Human beings understood that the best way of curating knowledge was in libraries, where, ideally, access would be unlimited, and material would be ordered, not by commercial concerns, but by a rational cataloging system. We are in the process of losing that world. And that, that is a really alarming prospect. Because more and more people, and I direct this particularly at the students, make the mistake of thinking that Google search is offering you a rational, ordered source of information. It's not. It is feeding you the content that you're most likely, on the basis of your personal data, to be engaged by so that they can sell ads. You don't get that when you go to the library. So we've ended up with a completely different public sphere from the one that the printing press created. Though there superficially are resemblances, with amazing speed, the internet became centralized and monetized. And that is, I think, much more problematic than most people realize when they use Google. Thanks. And Neil, this has important implications also for politics. Um, uh, you, you talk about it in your book. This business model, which is essentially goes for behavioral nudges that take you to make, try to make you respond to these impulses, is also being applied in the realm of politics. Yeah. And what sort of, what, what sort of effects do you see these, this, this ecosystem is having on our current political life? Well, I don't think I would have written the same book if it hadn't been for the events of 2016. Uh, Brexit and uh, Donald Trump's election victory were, for me, extraordinarily important events illustrating the power of the new technologies and particularly the network platforms to disrupt the democratic process itself. 
Again, I find that people are slow to appreciate the full magnitude of the transformation. Political scientists, I noticed this at a conference at Stanford last year, are still trying to understand those elections with models using data from as far back as the 1950s. And I'm like, no, everything has changed. Your, your models are obsolete because the most powerful tool in the history of democracy is Facebook advertising. And right now there are two kinds of candidate in most elections. The ones who understand Facebook advertising and the ones who lose. <laughs> Incidentally, it turns out that Facebook went to both the Trump campaign and the Clinton campaign and offered to embed technologists to help them use the advertising tool. Guess which campaign said yes? The Clinton campaign turned them down. So powerful are these tools that the events of 2016 and subsequent elections have been influenced to a degree widely underestimated by targeted advertising. It's extraordinarily powerful. You iterate it. You know exactly who you're targeting. You can cultivate the message. You can adjust it in response to likes or lack of likes. It's phenomenally powerful and really cheap. Remember, Donald Trump had half the campaign budget of Hillary Clinton. Without Facebook and Google, because YouTube played a big part, and Twitter, he could not have won that election. In a conventional pre-internet election uh, with television as the main source of information, he would have lost. This matters because every democracy is now affected, though it is changing at different speeds in different countries. Spain, I think, is somewhat behind uh, what I see in other countries. Uh, I was in Italy last week where in Matteo Salvini, you have a politician who entirely understands the new politics and knows exactly how to uh, exploit uh, the new tools. In Brazil, uh, it's also true that Bolsonaro, who may well win, uh, despite uh, or perhaps helped by the assassination attempt, understood the techniques. There is another much less well-known uh, tool, which is Google Search. Google search was used uh, to try to help Hillary Clinton unsuccessfully uh, in the following way, that if you search on Google, you will be prompted, you will give, be given suggestions of how to complete your search. And for a time when you Googled Hillary Clinton in 2016, you would be given options like, will be a great president. Uh, whereas if you went to the other search engines, you would get is in league with Satan, which was in fact a much more popular search query than will be a great president. So we have a whole bunch of new tools that are making democracy work completely differently. Uh, at the, the days when we all saw the same political ad advertisements on billboards uh, or on TV are over. And people who still waste money on that stuff will just keep losing elections. This is really troubling stuff because it's more or less completely unregulated. And most, most countries are lagging far behind the ways in which they, they manage the new tools uh, of, of political campaigning. And I think it is going to continue to be a problem in many, many countries until we change the way we handle these problems. Mm -hmm. And what sort of implication does this have for two very different models of dealing with this network? So we have the West, essentially, and we have China. Yeah. And China clearly, 
has a very different approach than the West has. Um, so what are, what are the key different approaches there? And what sort of implications that might have for the equilibria between these social networks and governing institutions in the state? I think there, there are really three models, not two. Uh, China's, uh, the United States, and, and Europe. And therefore, the West isn't quite uh, the right way to think about this, because there's a big difference between how the Europeans are doing this and how the Americans are doing it. In China, against everybody's expectation, it proved possible to exclude the big American technology companies and to allow rival Chinese companies, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, to grow in their place. Uh, these are the only rivals to the big Silicon Valley companies. Europe has none, zero. And so the Chinese situation surprised most observers, including the Chinese, who didn't exactly plan this. Nobody really planned uh, Alibaba, apart from Jack Ma. Once the Chinese government realized the potential uh, power of big data, they simply co-opted it. And so an uneasy but, I think, reasonably stable arrangement exists between the Communist Party and Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, whereby the data about individual citizens essentially are available to the party on demand. The possibility exists for a surveillance state far more powerful than anything imagined by George Orwell, because the data on uh, human behavior transmitted through a cell phone or a smartphone are far more revealing than the data that the telescreen in Orwell's 1984 could observe, because the telescreen was only in your apartment, if you remember, in 1984. Whereas we carry the telescreen around with us, and we voluntarily tell it everything that we do, and everywhere that we go, and what we think, and what we tell our friends. So the Chinese model looks like 1984 2.0, uh, and it's a terrifying prospect that soon there will be a system of social credit that punishes and rewards citizens, not just for their credit worthiness, but for their broadly uh, defined behavior. The European approach is, of course, uh, based on the realization that there are no European technology companies, and therefore all that Europe can do is regulate other people's big tech companies, principally the American ones. I am not at all sure that the Europeans are getting this right. Uh, superficially attractive though data portability might be, superficially attractive though it may seem to shut down hate speech and find companies that don't do so. But we'll leave that aside. Let's now look at the US model. What is the American solution to the problem? The answer is there is none. The American regulatory framework within which big top tech operates barely exists. Except that the tech companies, as private companies, can do whatever they like. They have community standards, which they define, and on the basis of which they can kick people off the platforms if they wish. There's no First Amendment right that guarantees you access to Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or any other platform. 
And yet these are the dominant players in the realm of media. They are not regulated as media companies, but as technology platforms. Under Section 230 of mid-1990s legislation called the Communications Decency Act, the big tech platforms have no liability for the content that appears on their platforms. So they're not regulated as publishers, nor are they regulated as telephone companies. The truth is they're barely regulated at all. And what makes the current situation so fascinating in the United States is that because of all the abuses of 2016, because of the Russians, but also because of the fake news that was generated in the United States, Americans and American legislators are having to ask themselves, how do we regulate these extraordinarily powerful companies? And nobody yet knows the answer. All I know, and it's really where the book concludes, is that the status quo cannot possibly be defended because it gives far too much power to the Emperor Augustus. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> um, given that we're in a business school, let me ask you a more specific question related to organizing, and that's the when is a hierarchy as a, as a form uh, a more effective and a, a more suitable form, and when would a network be the ideal form? In your book, it's fascinating seeing how networks and, and hierarchies clash in, in, in very many of these episodes. And sometimes networks bring down a hierarchy, and sometimes hierarchies kill networks. Yeah. Um, so when, when would you say that hierarchies are the optimal form, and when would a network be over? The reason that in history hierarchical structures have predominated is essentially a security problem. That up until recently, networks tended to have a security problem. They tended to be much more hackable than hierarchically structured uh, entities. And so we would tend to, because of defense, give power to uh, a commanding officer, knowing that if we left it to the people uh, on the battlefield, it would be chaos. Example, imagine that we try to organize the Dunkirk evacuation through social media. How do you think that would have gone? Um, I'm guessing not that well, because left to their own devices, the soldiers on the beaches at Dunkirk would have been seized with panic and would not have achieved an orderly evacuation uh, an operation, Operation Dynamo, that was absolutely centrally controlled. Uh, in wartime, you can't really have a, a, a networked architecture. You can't have a decentralized uh, structure in most cases. There are, however, uh, forms of military and business organization that benefit from network architecture. And this was laid bare uh, very, very nicely by Stan McChrystal in his memoir of the, the war in Iraq. It's a great book. McChrystal describes how Al-Qaeda in Iraq was completely destroying the American attempt to stabilize Iraq after its invasion. And it was doing so because it had a network structure. And Obama and his people were like, can't you just decapitate the, 
the organization. Can't you just kill the, the leader? And McChrystal came to realize that you couldn't really decapitate al-Qaeda in Iraq because it was a decentralized network. And he writes this great line in the book, it takes a network to defeat a network. So McChrystal took this very hierarchical US military structure with all its different silos and broke it down and created a, a military network, JSOC, that fought al-Qaeda in Iraq, network against network. So we know that network organizations can operate in the battlefield, and the same is true in business. I think the, the great problem for many established businesses today, this is very obvious in the realm of old media, uh, is that they are stuck with a hierarchical structure that really dates from the mid-20th century. And they're competing with uh, new organizations that are far more network-like. So the question is, do we have a way of institutionalizing networks so that they're not vulnerable to the kind of security problems that traditionally bedevil them? The answer to this may lie in blockchain technology. Peter Thiel said to me earlier this year a very brilliant thing in a conversation we had at Stanford. He said, artificial intelligence is communist and blockchain is, is libertarian. What he meant by this was that the, Ch the Chinese model threatens to become universal. Not only because the Chinese platforms are growing very rapidly, but because we might inadvertently create our own version of the Chinese model if the Emperor Augustus stroke Mark Zuckerberg is left with all the power he has. Artificial intelligence, whether it's in China or Europe or the United States, has the power to create mass surveillance and erode individual liberty completely. The only real viable alternative to that would be a blockchain-based architecture, a truly distributed network, which was uh, proof against uh, hacks because you can't hack the blockchain. And, and this is a really important point. Once the data have been added to the blockchain, it can't be changed. A lot of people in Silicon Valley are hoping that something other than Bitcoin uh, will come of blockchain technology that will allow a decentralized network to survive as a decentralized network and not become a hierarchy. And that's, I think, that's the best hope for those of us who are attracted to the notion of individual liberty uh, and who don't want to be under the surveillance of the Emperor Augustus or the Emperor Xi Jinping. Uh, but it's early days, and it's still the case that most of the energy in blockchain is going into cryptocurrencies, which I think will probably turn out to be a blind alley. Um, well, let's turn this dyad that we have here into, yeah. into a broader network. Good. And why don't we open the, the floor to, um, to some, for some questions. Um, I should warn you that I, I speak Spanish so badly and, 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 and Catalan, not at all, that you'd probably better ask me questions in English. <laughs> Forgive me. Hello, um, my name is Javier Buscais. I'm a professor here at the SADE. I have two brief questions. One, one is a comment, second is a question. The first is the, um, um, when I read your book, I was thinking I was reading a book about uh, uh, engine or historic engine 
between networks and hierarchies, which was a very interesting idea. But then maybe the book can be read as uh, we have networks and then hierarchies appear and then fall or collapse and then there are new networks. So it's, it's just a thought. It's a reaction about that. Second question is about leadership. There is a piece where you talk about Kissinger, um, openness versus closeness in terms of leadership was very impressive. And then I would like if you had comments about leading networks in terms of openness or closeness. Yeah. Thank you. Great comment and great question. To the comment, I think the, the, the book is attempting to present the historical process as a kind of dialectical one. Uh, not that I'm a very Hegelian person, but there is a dialectical quality to this story whereby a hierarchy establishes itself. It, it becomes better and better at defense and rent-seeking and worse and worse at innovation. That's the problem about the org chart. Uh, and the information flows become excessively top-down. And then along comes the revolutionary network. Uh, and the, the challenge is mounted. Uh, the, the network disrupts the hierarchy. But then that network evolves into a new hierarchy. And, and this is a kind of plausible um, leitmotif for the history that I've studied. Uh, and the book tries to show that it, 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 it works in a variety of different contexts. The critical variable that causes uh, history uh, to, to vary, the reason that all periods are not the same, is that the technology sometimes favors the, the disruptive network and sometimes not. Uh, if you wanted to have a disruptive network in Hitler's Germany, and people certainly tried, uh, good luck, because the chances of your getting past first base were tiny. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, story that illustrates that, uh, which I, I quote the story of two Berliners who tried to uh, attack the regime by just leaving postcards in the streets of Berlin uh, attacking the Nazis. This was a couple whose son had been killed in the invasion of France, and in their bitterness, they turned against the regime. This was a kind of uh, attempt to create a, a, a viral popular rejection of uh, the regime. Uh, postcards just dropped in different places around Berlin. Uh, all of those postcards were handed in by members of the public to the Gestapo, and the couple were arrested and, and executed. So th there are times when the technology favors you, and there are times when it doesn't. Uh, and the, the 1940s were a terrible time to organize a subversive network in a totalitarian state. Same stories can be told about Stalin's uh, Soviet Union. So I, th I think that's, that's probably the best way of thinking about the first part of your question. Uh, Leadership. I wish I had a Bitcoin for all the bad books about leadership that have been written uh, <laughs> by academics who are the group of people who understand leadership the least. Uh, as a general rule, there are exceptions to this, uh, but there aren't many. I, I think that when you start to look at 
successful leaders in both business and the realm of, of power, of politics, uh, there are striking differences between the hierarchs, uh, the Napoleons, and, and the networkers, the, the Kissingers. Napoleon is my kind of exemplar of, of top-down leadership. Napoleon inherits the chaos of the French Revolution and essentially says, I alone can fix this. And if you read uh, biographies of Napoleon, he really did micromanage every single thing he could. Uh, he had an obsessive compulsive disorder that led him to think that unless he did it, it wouldn't get done, right down to the color of the buttons on the uniform of the Irish army they would raise if they successfully invaded Ireland. <laughs> he, he had that figured out. So, so Napoleon is the, control, the leader as control freak. And I, I'm a bit of a control freak. As I was reading Andrew Roberts's Napoleon, I was thinking, you know, maybe, I'm, maybe I should just keep with the control freakery. Uh, maybe maybe it, it's, it's going to work. The op opposite model is, is, the, is the networker model, where uh, you base your power really on delegation and on the relationships that you build. Uh, that, that was, I think, one of the reasons Kissinger went from being an obscure professor that Richard Nixon had inexplicably hired to being the second most powerful man in the United States by certainly in the 1973 uh, Middle Eastern crisis. And I think one has to kind of ask the question, which is the appropriate style of leadership for the context that you're in? Uh, because I think these cases illustrate that both can work in the appropriate context. My own sense is that the best way to understand leadership is to read biographies, historical biographies, of successful leaders. The problem is, and that's a very enjoyable way of learning about it too, I've just received Doris Kearns Goodwin's latest book, which takes four American presidents and analyzes their leadership style. This is a very attractive approach, and one learns a good deal from it. But there's a survivorship problem. By definition, the people in that book are the successful leaders. There's no real record of the people who tried the same techniques and failed, whether through bad luck uh, or some variable that was beyond their control. Until we can think more systematically about leadership failure, I think we are going to keep getting this wrong because we tend to study excessively the successes. There aren't enough failure cases at business schools. I taught at Harvard Business School, uh, and I was disturbed by the fact that when a company that they'd studied failed, they, they, they stopped teaching the cases. This is most notoriously true of Enron. There were three Enron cases when Enron was the coolest energy company in town. Then when it turned out to be a huge scam and Skilling went to jail, those cases suddenly disappeared and nobody wrote <laughs> a case about Enron as a scam. So I think there's a, there's a very important lesson which historians and business professors alike need to, to learn, and that is that we must study failure as much as we study success.
delighted to see a question from a student or a very young member of faculty. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Ask <laughs> student. So I mean, so we know the problem, and now what hope is there for democracy? Because I mean, we have seen that the trend is that it is receding. I mean, either because of you know it is being subverted as a result of fake news, and on the other on the other hand, I mean, it is being also subverted as a result of you know trying to to you know to implement the China model you know by taking the easier solution and certainly the one belt one road policy of China which is I mean it, it is sharing its model with the world it isn't it isn't helping so how should we stop the trend? Thank you. This is a very important question, maybe the hardest that could have been asked. In the uh, latest I issue of the Atlantic Monthly, the Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari has a very pessimistic essay, more or less saying that in the age of artificial intelligence, democracy is finished. And I know a number of other intellectuals who agree or certainly share the fear that the Chinese model ultimately prevails. This goes back to Peter Thiel's warning that AI is communist because artificial intelligence makes possible the vision of the, plan, the planned economy, uh, the planned society that wasn't possible in the 20th century because we lacked the computing power to solve for a complete surveillance state. Now, the this book is in some measure pessimistic because I argue that the pathologies of democracy and the homegrown ones, even without Russian help, are so serious that we have ahead of us potential uh, civil wars. The, the way that the, the network platforms currently operate is as engines of polarization. And so, and nothing has changed since 2016 to stop that. So in most democracies where the social media platforms are becoming dominant, we see a, a polarization and a rush to the extremes in, in politics. So I am pessimistic that that will continue unless we radically alter the regulatory framework. But I'm an optimist about one thing. I am an optimist that the Chinese model will fail. And let me tell you why. I'm old enough to remember the 1980s and, and to remember how few people foresaw the collapse of the Soviet empire, a handful. The conventional wisdom in academia was that convergence was occurring and indeed, but both systems were essentially becoming similar, bureaucratized, with a kind of mixed economic model. The people who said that the thing was going to fall apart were regarded as, as cranks. Even into the summer of 1989, when it was obvious that something was going very wrong, at least in Eastern Europe. And I feel exactly the same way about all the books that I read and the articles I read about how extraordinarily powerful Xi Jinping is and how amazing the Chinese system of social credit will be and how smart they are to have engineered uh, 
an artificial intelligence-based uh, totalitarian state. History is, above all, a discipline based on irony. Ironical things happen. And the collapse of the Chinese uh, communist regime will be one of the biggest jokes that history has played in a long time. I'm not sure when it will happen, but I am sure that they have created, with their uh, economic strategy, a profoundly unsustainable model that no amount of data will make sustainable. Uh, the pile of debt keeps rising, productivity and the return on capital keeps falling. The Belt and Road Initiative is essentially an attempt to find markets for capital goods that China no longer needs. Let's not be taken in again by the story that central planning is superior to distributed or decentralized organization. We ran the 20th century experiment, and the result was clear. I'm not convinced that AI is such a game changer that it makes central planning viable, and it makes central planning more likely to succeed than a decentralized market and other uh, and other modes of a free society. So I, I think we should take comfort from two inferences. We can fix the democratic problem. As I mentioned earlier, there are regulatory changes that can bring social media under control and prevent our political process from being destroyed by it. We can do that. Uh, and I think if we do that, we will be able to harness the benefits of a free society uh, as we have for the past 200 years. The Chinese may have AI, but they will have no freedom. Indeed, I see already in uh, Chinese universities a chilling of the atmosphere that makes discussion much less easy than it was before. Oh, Professor Ferguson, don't mention the Cultural Revolution in your lecture like you did last time. <laughs> this happens. So they will have all the data, except for the data that the citizens stop giving them, except for the things that don't get said, except for the thoughts that don't get thought. And we, in our messy, effed-up way, will continue, God willing, to have the freedom to say things that are unpopular, are politically incorrect, and maybe just creative. Sure, there are efforts being made on all kinds of university campuses to stamp out free speech and free thought in America. But they haven't got me yet, and I'd hope that they never will. So I'm going to back individual freedom and decentralized structures even in the age of artificial intelligence. Because I think that we're, f we're being fooled by the myth of a planned society, just like we were in the 20th century. And in the end, freedom will have the last laugh. Thank you. Perhaps the last question. Well, two, let's take two questions. I'll do, I'll do I can do short answers. <laughs> So there's one here. Just a second. We have a mic there. We'll get there. Uh, thank you. 
Um, thank you so much for uh, being here. It's really a pleasure and a privilege. Um, I was wondering, how do you think about the interplay of networks and hierarchies in academia? Mm. And uh, being an academic yourself and at business schools, um, how do you think about, uh, what are your thoughts about the future of business school education and of business schools through the lens that you have developed in the book and introduced in the book? I'm sure you have had some thoughts about it. There's a great Henry Kissinger line about academic politics. Uh, which is that it's, it's so toxic because the stakes are so low. <laughs> and I have had experience that backs up this observation. Having said that, universities have been successful as institutions since medieval times, and in some cases, uninterrupted success, precisely because they are relatively uh, decentralized networks. As anybody who has ever tried to run a university or indeed an academic department knows, uh, the higher up the organization chart you go, the less power there actually is. And the conventional challenge of any academic administrator is to herd cats. Uh, academics do not, as a group, respond well to hierarchical uh, structures. And that can be infuriating, uh, but it is also a great strength of, of universities as institutions. The business schools where I have worked were more corporate in their organization than the history departments, but they were still pretty decentralized. And the faculty, the tenured faculty, were pretty hard to hold to any strategic plan or even message. And I think that is why I became an academic. From a very early age, I hated hierarchical structures of power. I was a very rebellious teenager at school in Glasgow. Our school was a war memorial to the dead of the First World War, and we all had to be once a week in Army, Navy, or Air Force uniforms on a parade ground uh, being given basic military training. I hated it. I hated it so passionately that I deserted. <laughs> I, I, I had a quite careful scheme to escape after the first parade and the roll call. Uh, I took off my uniform, I hid it in a locker in the junior school, climbed over a wall and took the bus home. Unfortunately, when I went back to school the next day, the uniform had gone. Uh, somebody had, uh, had spotted me, some malicious actor, and so I was stuffed and I had to admit what I'd done. And in another school, I would have been expelled. Uh, but luckily, the deputy headmaster figured that I was a reasonable prospect for Oxford admission, and so I was forgiven. I became an academic when I realized that nearly all jobs, whether in finance, or in industry, or in any walk of life, involved hierarchical structure and somebody who was your boss. 
Only academic life offered the prospect of, of freedom, of what we'll call nominal bosses rather than real bosses. Only academic life said, you have to work at teaching half the year, but the other half, you just have to do research. I thought, how wonderful. <laughs> how completely extraordinary that there should be a job where you get paid to read books and then write books. <laughs> and almost nobody can shout at you. <laughs> so I have a temperamental preference for academic life over other walks of life. My only sadness is that I see all around me in universities today a kind of withering of the spirit, the libertarian spirit of academia, and the increasing uh, power of illiberal, intolerant factions that would limit uh, what we can say and write. I think that's terrible, and I, I will fight extremely hard to prevent universities from becoming monochrome uh, camps for re-education in progressive doctrine. In this fight, business schools will be an important ally because by and large, business schools are the least left-wing institutions in academia. Funny that. Uh, but I guess if you spend most of your time explaining how capitalism works, <laughs> it's kind of hard to be a socialist in any meaningful sense. So we have a fight on our hands. It's not confined to the United States. It is a fight that is spreading throughout the Western world. And it is a fight to maintain intellectual diversity in universities. There should be, there must be intellectual diversity. Students must be able to hear both Marxist historians and reactionary conservative historians and everything in between. Because that's why they're called universities. The ultimate diversity, the, the, the diversity that matters more, I'm frankly going to say this, more than gender balance, more than ethnic diversity, the thing that matters most is intellectual diversity. And if we lose that, then we shouldn't be called universities anymore. So I'm, you know, I'm laying my cards on the table here. I, I became an academic for the sake of freedom. I knew the money was bad, <laughs> but I wasn't really interested in the money. I was interested, above all else, in, in the freedom that academic life permits. And if that is threatened, then I shall fight back very hard, and I hope that I can count on business schools to be on my side. <laughs> Let's take the last question. Professor Ferguson, you, you must be tired of answering questions about Trump, but if I may, um, one of the dif I can think of many differences between Martin Luther and Trump. <laughs> one of them being that Luther was a visionary who understood the technology he was using, whereas I'm not so sure about Trump. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about, you mentioned YouTube, for instance, that it played a big role in his campaign. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about who was the mastermind, who was pulling the strings, who was talking to Facebook and YouTube and Twitter on his behalf. Uh, and also, since you were discussing the different leadership models earlier, in what kind of model would Trump uh, fit? Thank you. Two great questions. And it would be 
it would be absurd not to talk about Trump because he has come to personify uh, the spirit of the age in, in all its strangeness. The first answer to your question is Steve Bannon, um, with s significant help from Brad Pascal. They were the ones who understood what needed to be done. The content was predominantly Bannon, though let's not ignore Trump's own contribution. People sometimes forget that Trump offered a clear set of policy options, and they were his. Uh, the restriction of immigration, the imposition of tariffs on China, all of that came from Trump. He'd been talking about these things not just for years, but for decades. What Bannon understood was how to translate Trump's message into the kind of viral populist content that would defeat Clinton. And what Brad Pascal understood was that Facebook advertising was the tool to use. And they understood it because they'd observed its use in the Brexit referendum. I think one shouldn't underestimate uh, Bannon because whether you regard him as yesterday's man because he's no longer in the White House or the Prince of Darkness that you can't invite to your conference because he's so scary, can I just say how pathetic it was of David Remnick to cancel his invitation because a few people in the New Yorker were triggered? That's so lame. Bannon's the key, because Bannon's the nearest thing to an ideologue of the populist uh, uh, backlash that there is. Trump's style of leadership is very hard for uh, people to understand, because they are constantly being told now by Bob Woodward, uh, but on a daily basis by the New York Times, that he is an, a toddler, an infant, uh, and that he is incapable of, uh, of making a coherent decision and spends all his time uh, tweeting and watching Fox News. And, and this, is, um, this makes it hard to imagine that, that this can be anything other than a colossal mess. Now, I'm a historian who who learned as a graduate student, if not as an undergraduate, that you shouldn't just study the personality of the king, that one should study the structure of power. Uh, the structure of power is a different thing from the personality of the president. Uh, as we have, in fact, ample evidence to see, because the administration of Donald Trump uh, has acted highly effectively in a whole range of different domains, most obviously in uh, economic deregulation uh, and tax cutting, but also in foreign policy, uh, and in particular in applying pressure to China. There are marked improvements when one looks at the administration relative to its predecessor, which was in fact quite incompetent in the realm of foreign policy, with disastrous consequences in Syria. So we have to distinguish between Trump the person uh, and the Trump administration, and stop acting like Donald Trump is king. Uh, but even if he were king, there would still be a structure of politics. One last observation. 
Trump's leadership style as a businessman was always strange. If you talk to the people who've done business with him, in particularly the New York real estate and financial world, they'll tell you how unreliable he was as a business partner and how they all, in the end, stopped doing business with him. Trump is not somebody who uh, appears to have benefited greatly from business school uh, because he acts in ways that are, from a business point of view, suboptimal, uh, constantly damaging his own reputation for creditworthiness and narrowing down the range of business partners until only Russian oligarchs were left. So I think as a businessman, uh, Donald Trump was not a success and did not greatly add to the business he inherited from his father. But as a uh, TV personality and as a politician in the age of Facebook and Twitter, he has proved to be formidable and his enemies continue to underestimate him in ways that I find baffling. How much, how much do they have to be defeated to get it, to understand that even an anonymous denunciation in the New York Times doesn't really hurt him that much. So I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that Trump is a successful president by certain measures that we tend to ignore because the narrative in the liberal media has to be that he's a disaster because he was never supposed to become president. For all my liberal colleagues at Harvard and at Stanford, in New York, in Boston, and in San Francisco, none of this should be happening. Since November the 9th, 2016, they've inhabited a parallel universe that they did not want to be in. <laughs> and all they can think about is the other universe that they thought they would be in, where Hillary Clinton was president and they had jobs in her administration. And as long as they are mentally in that virtual world, they cannot reconcile themselves to anything about this world. And therefore, the narrative has to be that the president is a toddler, an infant, and everything is going to hell. But in case you hadn't noticed, everything is not going to hell, and certainly not in terms of the economy. One way of understanding the paradox of Trump is to compare what is said about him in the media with business confidence surveys. Uh, business confidence surveys tell you something very important about any administration. And I will believe he has a problem when those, when those go down. And at this point, Ain't happening. Well, we should, or we would like to continue uh, this conversation, but unfortunately we had a commitment to finish at eight. We have a book stand and a glass of cava waiting for us. And um, I want to, however, thank those that have made this uh, conversation possible, bringing Professor Ferguson over to Esade, which is a, a great privilege for us to, to have you with us. Um, Thank you, uh, Fundación del Pino. Uh, thank you, uh, Debate Editorial. Thank you, uh, Colectivo Toqueville. And thank you for your frank and stimulating conversation. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Esade, inspiring futures.